So one student stood up while we were all standing behind the chairs and he gave thanks. He said this, for what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. Now I'm sure you've all heard that's a very traditional grace. So we sat down to have a meal, <clears throat> except one student, he stood up. He says, I'm ashamed before you to pray that grace. He says, the Lord has given us good things. And here we are asking him to make us thankful. I'd never given thought to that before. God has given us that. And yet we were asking God to make us thankful. Surely the thankfulness should have been spontaneous. And really that is what fundamentally the harvest is about. It's that one occasion, although there can be many others, but there's one specific occasion when we just say thank you, God. doesn't take a lot, does it? Just to say thank you. I'm sure all of us at times maybe have been hurt when somebody has received a gift or something from us and they haven't had the time or can't be bothered just to say thank you. You know, it's not something you sort of ask for, but it's a show of appreciation. And thank God this morning we have an opportunity of showing our appreciation to God for his goodness, which shadows us every day of our life. We're thinking this morning about new creations. And the first question I suppose I ought to ask this morning is, are you a new creation in God? And I will also say this, that if you're not, you can be a new creation, made anew in God, no matter how old you are, young or old, a chance to take, to be a new creation. Just a short reading this morning from 2 Corinthians and chapter 5 and uh, verse 16. From now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. I don't know what I did with it, but many years ago I had a little blue hardback book, which was J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament. I don't know where I got it from, whether I bought it or somebody gave it to me, I have no idea. Neither do I have any idea where it is today. But I'm sorry, I lost it somewhere along the way. Because I found that new that translation of the New Testament rather remarkable in many ways. And one of the verses, or parts of that uh, translation, uh, stood out to me and still stands out to me now. It went like this. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has finished and gone, and everything has become new and fresh. And it's like just that last phrase that I've always loved, 
that everything has become new and fresh. New creations. Have something absolutely new. If, and I believe most of you here this morning are a new creature in Christ, can you remember that time when the revelation came to you concerning your salvation and you were born again? Now, it may be for some of you, you could stand up and give me the date and the time. Some of you can't. I could not tell you the date and time when the new creation happened in my life. It came, I think, over a little period of time. I know there was a time when I came forward for Christ at a meeting and knelt at the front. And I've given this testimony before, and perhaps I'll give it again one of these days, because it was a little bit remarkable in itself. But when we came to Christ, I wanted just to make this thing clear right at the beginning. You didn't come alone. Somebody else was involved in your salvation. You may never have recognized it. It may be somebody who testified to you. It may be somebody who just prayed for you and you don't even know who it was. It may be you sat under the gospel of some preacher. But be sure of this, somewhere along the line, God used somebody to bring you to Christ. In, perhaps in a way you never noticed, but it happened. Someone else was involved in your salvation. But do you remember the time that it happened? What was your experience at that particular time? For me, it was excitement. There was a freshness in my life because I, I, my background had nothing to do with church. I, I was born in a family where my mother and father believed in God. And they expressed it in various ways. They didn't go to church for one thing. And another thing is that uh, my mum wouldn't knit on a Sunday. She'd go to, go to the pictures on a Sunday night, but she wouldn't knit on a Sunday. But there was this sort of kind of traditional godliness, you could call it, religion, that overshadowed our families. As children, we were forbidden to do certain things. But we could do other things, which <laughs> contradicted everything. But that was my kind of break. And when the breakthrough came in my life, and I first knew Christ, there was an excitement. There was a business about my life. I began to do things for God. And in fact, I, I was foolish in many ways because I took on more than I could handle. I did. I got involved in this and I got involved in that. So many things, you know. I remember, I think, on a Sunday... I would probably attend at least six meetings at the church. We wouldn't have six meetings at a church these days, but they did. I don't mean just services, but there was Sunday school I was involved in. There was hospital visiting I was involved in where we took services in the wards at hospital. And these things went on through. A Sunday for me was full up from start to finish. There was, but I didn't mind it. I was excited about it. You know, it was wonderful. There was a little book, too, I had years ago, called uh, The Life of Billy Bray, a Cornish miner. Now, unless you're an older person like me, you wouldn't have probably ever heard of him. It wasn't, wasn't a person of great fame or significance, but he was a hard-swearing, drunken, wife-beating miner, tin miner in Cornwall. He was a blackguard. 
But somewhere along the line, somebody brought him to Christ. I can't remember the circumstances, but he did. And overnight, he was a changed man, completely different. Everything was different. And the stories in this little book, which was only about 120 pages, if I remember rightly, it was full of the change in Billy Bray. Unrecognisable from the person he was. In fact, he was so excited about his new salvation, he once said, if you put me in a barrel and you put the lid on, I'll shout hallelujah through the bungle. <laughs> he was excited, the change. And I remember as a young man reading this book, and I thought, yes, that's really true of me. I feel somehow in the same way. I just want to read another little portion of scripture to you. I mean, Romans 8 is a tremendous chapter full of wonderful things, wonderful testimony. Just a little bit. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Did you know, when you came to Christ, or even if you're coming to Christ at this moment, God has laid his hand upon you. It didn't, your salvation didn't come by accident. God had selected you. God had chosen you and laid his hand upon you. Now that doesn't take away the fact that at one point you had a choice. God chose you, laid his hand upon you, but he challenged you in some way, challenged you to make a decision which you could take or reject the decision to become a Christian, a follower of God, an ambassador for Christ. You had a choice. And thankfully, if you're a new creation in Christ, you made the right choice. And if you're at the point this morning where you're not too sure about things, let me tell you this, that God prompts you, touches you, persuades you, and gives you the chance to make your own personal choice to receive or to reject. And basically this morning I want to talk to you about two New Testament characters this morning, quite briefly, not half an hour each, just, just briefly. One of them was a young man who came to Christ and the story is recorded in, most, it's more, more clarified in Mark chapter 10 simply called the rich young ruler. Don't know his name, but we do know about him from that passage of scripture is that he was a, a godly young man. Because when Jesus came, or well, he came to Jesus and he asked the question, which was a, a lovely question really, Master, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus said to him, he says, you must Keep the commandments. And the young man could reply to him in all honesty, I have kept the commandments from my youth. He was obviously brought up in a good Jewish tradition 
and he tried as hard as he could to keep the commandments, and that is commendable. He, no doubt he broke them many times, but he tried as best he could to keep the commandments. And it says that there that Jesus looked upon him and loved him. Now he was a lovely young man. He was also a lovely business young man as well because he obviously had an acumen for, for business. He was a rich, young ruler. He's what we would call today an entrepreneur. Business. He wanted the best of everything. He wanted money. He wanted position and he chained it. He got power. He was a rich, young ruler. He was wealthy. You can imagine him in rich clothes and dining in the best places and having everything. But he wanted more and he wanted more and he wanted, he wanted the best of everything. And do you know, whether I'm right or wrong, I, I kind of admire him in that, wanting the best. I think it's one of the things I've always lacked in my life is confidence. This young man had plenty of confidence. He wanted the best. One show, you were a, a, a young fellow. He was a father to a friend of my daughter's. They played together. His name was Paul. And uh, we were in Wellingborough at that time. And I knew Paul and his wife and, and the daughter, Catherine, and who played with our daughter. Now, Paul reminds me of that rich young ruler because he was an ambitious man. He wanted the best, and he was pushing for the best. And he said to me on one occasion, he says, why are you a minister of, of the church? He says, you had a good job, which I did. He says, you gave it up and you became a minister. Why did you do that? And I explained to him about the calling of Christ and how I felt compelled to become a minister. I never wanted to be a minister, I'll tell you that now. I'd always said to myself, yeah, through my life, one thing I didn't want to do was become a minister. But God had other ideas. I had many arguments with God about it, but he won. <laughs> but Paul, he was ambitious in this way. And he said to me, he said, you know, if there's something in this religion, he called it, that you preach, I want it. And I remember I testified to him and I spoke to him and I explained to him through the gospel about it. And when he said to me, he said, I'll, I'll bear this in mind. He was, I think I'm correct in saying he was 49 years of age. And he, one morning he, caught, he had a, a meeting with some of the friends because they were setting up a new business of their own. And he had a heart attack and died instantly. Just collapsed, died at the age of 49. But he was a man with ambitions who wanted everything. I don't know if he ever found Christ. I don't know. But he knew the, the word and God had put us together to tell him that. I like to think he did, but I don't know. But it reminds me, you see, of this opportunity of saying yes or no when challenged by Christ. The rich young ruler said to Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, I've done that. And Jesus said to him, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. 
Jesus, I'm sorry, the young man turned with sadness, it says, and walked away. He had the choice. God had laid his hand upon him, gave him every opportunity to say yes or no. But he said no and walked away with great sadness because he was missing out on something. The riches, the power, or salvation. And he chose the riches and the power. The second person I want to talk about is a totally different person. A good person, nevertheless, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus had a need. His need was not for riches. And it wasn't a need for religion because he had a stomach full of religion. You know, a Pharisee was brought up as a child in the scriptures, especially the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first books of Moses. They were brought up and ate and drink the scriptures. He lived in the scriptures. He knew the word, the Old Testament. He knew it word verse by verse up. I would imagine if you just asked him anything, question about the Bible, a verse in the Bible where it found, he could tell you. He was a religious, deeply religious young man, or maybe he was an older man, we're not told his age. But he had this need, and I don't know how he procured this need, whether he'd heard Jesus preach, I, th I think that's more than likely that because many Pharisees listened to Jesus and were offended by him. I would imagine pro probably, but this is only conjecture, that he was among Pharisees that listened to Jesus preaching. May have been somebody else spoke to him, I don't know. But in reality, what happened was he came to Jesus because he had a need. He had religion, but he didn't have what Jesus was talking about. New life, forgiveness, reconciliation, salvation. He didn't have those things. He had religion, plenty of it. And so he wanted to take a step further and find out the truth. And so he meets Jesus by night. I think there's a little bit of significance in this, you know. It would have been difficult for him to do it during the day when all the Pharisees were about. Not so much the embarrassment, but the difficulty would have risen in his position as a Pharisee. And Jesus understands this. And I think he helps him by saying, well, meet you at such and such a place, we'll have a rendezvous at night. Again, it's conjecture on my part. That's how I see the scriptures there. And so he comes to Jesus by night. You know, Nicodemus is mentioned three times in Scripture. First of all, most vividly in John chapter 3, also in John chapter 7, and also in John chapter 19. In, in John 3, of course, it's where we hear those great words of Jesus spoken to him when he said, you must be born again. In chapter 7, you find that Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees. Nicodemus is there, standing up 
and speaking for Jesus in front of the Pharisees and among the Pharisees. And the third occasion is when it came to the laying of Jesus in the tomb. Nicodemus brought spices and oils to anoint the body of Jesus and also I would imagine because of him being a Pharisee performed the last rites when Jesus was laid in the tomb. So what happened with Nicodemus on that rendezvous with Jesus was lasting. He found what he wanted in Jesus. He had the had the religion, but I believe there he found eternal life. And I believe when he left that garden or wherever it was with Jesus that night, he went away with a joy in his heart. Sadly, the Yipshyongola young ruler walked away with sadness in his heart. Joy or sadness? Joy or sadness? And that is the challenge, isn't it? You know, for some this morning, if you don't know Christ, you know, there's an opportunity here because God may be tapping you on the shoulder and saying to you, no, no, I've chosen you. I've known about you before you were even born. I've chosen you. I lay my hand upon you. But the decision is yours to follow me, to walk away, to have joy in your heart, or to know sadness, your choice. I've told people before about this, but uh, and I've told five years a congregation, I don't know. Janet and I were called on one particular occasion, challenged to start a church on a housing estate in Wellingborough. Now, I'd been a whole mission evangelist for the denomination for a couple of years or so. I'd been to Bible college, and I'd got a job, you know, left this behind me. I'd gone home, and I'd got a job. And the challenge came to us to go and plant a church on a housing estate, which weren't built at the time, for a London overspill. And uh, I, I pondered it in my mind, and I turned it down straight away. <laughs> But uh, they came back to me again and a third time, and eventually we agreed to go and give it a go. And uh, to cut a long story short, we arrived in Wallingborough. Timing had gone haywire because we were supposed to work on this housing estate, but it hadn't even started to be built when we arrived. So we worked on a private estate initially. We, the denomination bought us a, a, a house, a six a three-bedroom house to use as a, a basis for starting a church. Now, when I went there, I remember even in the train going there, thinking to myself, how do you start a church? What am I going to do? How am I going to do it? I've got no idea, I'll tell you that, no idea. And when we arrived, I've got no idea. Um... So I got a little inspiration at one time to print some leaflets. Somebody had given us an old printer, messy thing. It's a handle thing and you've got ink all over your hands. And, but anyway, what I decided to do was to type out some letters. I think I did 500 at a time, 500 each month. And I went round this private estate and what I did, I put... 50 leaflets, sorry, I put 450 leaflets through the door and knocked on the door of the other 50. 
And the next month I did a different 50, and then 50, till eventually over a period of time I visited every house on the estate of these leaflets, once a month, once a month, put them through the door or knocking on the doors. And nothing seemed to happen. And I've probably said to God at one stage, I told you so. <laughs> Didn't work. People weren't woke. But I remember going around on one occasion with these estates when there was a tap on the window. Now, I want to tell you this, that what I did in those days, I would not be able to do today. I'd be slung in prison for a start. Because in those days, there was no health and safety. There was, there was no uh, political correctness. And I did as I felt I ought to do. And what I did, I knocked on these doors, remember, during the week. And uh, most men were at work and women were alone in the house. But I didn't stop. I still knocked on the doors. Well, on occasion, the tap on the window. And a lady came to the door, a young woman came to the door and asked me to come over to her. She said, you keep putting leaflets through my door. And she says, I want to know what this is all about. Because in these leaflets, I obviously put the gospel message and what we were doing, what we were doing, etc., etc., local news, you know. She says, well, what is this salvation all about? She, was, she said, I've never been to church except for a funeral. And I wonder if you'd just come in a few minutes and explain with me. So I did. I went in with her and I explained to her the gospel. And she said, would you pray with me? And I did. I prayed with her. And she said, do you think if I ask God, I can be a Christian right now? And I said, of course. And she did. She said, I want to know Christ. And she became a Christian that instant. Now, her name was, uh, uh, what was her name? Pat. That's right, Pat. Pat. Well, it must have been a bit like me when I was converted because she was quite excited about it, what had happened to her. And she told her friend two doors up, Mary, what had happened to her. Mary said, no, you're a bit of fool. You're a fool. There's no God. If there was God, there wouldn't be suffering in the world and so forth. You know the old arguments, so on. But somehow or another, God must have tapped Mary on the shoulder because... She went to Pat and she said, I want to be like you, I want to be a Christian. And she became a Christian. Now, Pat and Mary witnessed to people nearby on the housing estate, which was gradually now being built. And they had a unique opportunity. They had a wonderful vision, I suppose you call it. You know, Monday is generally wash day, isn't it? So what they decided to do was to call some friends and neighbours round and have have a, a wash a wash day. You know, they bring the wash around, do it all in one machine, and have a cup of coffee and a chat and so forth, about half a dozen of them. They did that. And Mr. Pat and Mary witnessed, brought two or three more to Christ. Those two or three went along with the other people and said, one or two more to Christ. And, you know, somehow a church was being built. And none of them up to this point had ever had any church background which in a sense was lovely because they had no traditions to worry about. Everything was new and fresh. But all I'm telling you this is before, 
It's because God works that way. He taps people on the shoulder. He uses you and me, people, just to witness, to tap people on the shoulder and say, you know, you can be a new creation. You're old. Your life, with all the sadness and difficulty, put it behind you, put it in the trap drawer and put the lid down on top. Forget it, because everything now is new and fresh. And that's what's happened. New creations. I hope we've got plenty of new creations in this church this morning. I believe we have. It's wonderful when you have, have, have had that experience. But, you know, years come and years go, and it's a lot of years since that happened to me, a lot of years. One of the sad things about it is that somewhere along the line, you know, you can lose that joy. You lose the sense of that newness and that experience. You become embodied in the everyday things of life. You know, the problems, the crisis, and things that prop up in life. Although God is with you all the way through it, sometimes we forget and sometimes we relapse and we lose that sense of joy, which is very sad. And in closing, I just want to bring you a, a little message from a person who died many, many, many years ago, a hymn writer called William Cooper. Now, William Cooper, he was a a very emotional man. He had his great ups and his great downs. On top of the world at one moment and very in the depths at the next. He was that kind of... He was a great friend of the uh, uh, hymn writer... Um, put his, uh, what's his name? Oh, yes, John Newton. Amazing Grace and many other great hymns as well. They were great friends. John uh, William Cooper the end of his ministry, he actually ministered in Durham at the church in the marketplace there. You see it every time you go to Durham. He was there, but he wrote many hymns, and one of them has always been implanted in my mind. And I just wish to read it to you now, in conclusion, where he prays this prayer. He was obviously in the depths at this time when he wrote this hymn. It's very personal. Some of you may know it. Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light that shines upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Return, O oh holy dove, return. Sweet messenger of rest, I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from the throne, my throne, and worship only you. So shall my walk be close with God, calm and serene my frame, so pure a light shall mark the road that leads me to the Lamb. That hymn is always sort of implanted in me because I love that verse. Where is that blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? You know, we're a new creation in God. The devil afflicts us. The devil challenges all the way through life. You'll come across the real heart till you really become a Christian because the devil hates you following Christ. 
and he afflicts us with memories and things that we don't need in our life. And they dampen the joy and the thanksgiving and the richness of the new creation. You've experienced a new creation in your life at some point. I just pray to God that you experience it today. And if you don't, renew that fellowship with God. Find again that newness in Christ and rejoice as you once rejoiced when you first knew the Lord. You are a new creation in Christ. Make the most of it and enjoy it. Amen. Amen.